So on Sunday, we were going through Revelation chapter 21. We're going through the book of Revelation on Sunday mornings. We're getting uh, pretty much within striking distance of finishing the book. And uh, I had every intention uh, of getting through verses 1 through 8 on Sunday in chapter 21, uh, where God uh, creates a new heavens and a new earth and all of this. And uh, and in the midst of that discussion, uh, I felt compelled to um, take a minute or few minutes really turned out to be, but um, to talk about uh, Israel's uh, central place in eschatology, uh, biblical end times prophecy and and the subject. So uh, as I was talking about it, um, I found uh, in retrospect that um, I I realized that I came off pretty strong on the subject. Uh, You can watch the the service. It's, it's, you know, we, we live stream and then it's on our YouTube channel, but um, uh, and, and I found myself maybe being very direct about some things and very, um, trying to speak as clearly as I could about the subject, uh, although we didn't go as in depth as, as I would typically go when we talk specifically about that subject. Um, uh, but I did find myself kind of, kind of hammering that one a little bit. And, uh, um, and I got to thinking about it afterwards and, uh, and I realized that this is a subject that I do feel pretty passionate about. And, um, and I, as I was thinking it through a little bit, I thought it might not be a bad idea to maybe take a post. Uh, again, we've done this in the past, and, and sometimes we'll revisit subjects because I, as I mentioned before, I don't, I don't expect everybody to go back and watch all these posts and everything. And so this may not be that familiar of a subject to some. Um, and I think it's important that it become an important subject uh, for the for the body of Christ. And and I think there are two reasons, at least from my perspective, that I think this is important. One uh, is because there is a move within Christendom, within professing believers, um, very surprisingly uh, against the idea of Israel having that central place in eschatology. Uh, and it finds expression in different ways. Uh, oftentimes, it's um, it finds expression through the idea that or propagating the idea that the Israel that's in the land now is not the Israel uh, descended from Abraham. They're not the ones uh, that the Bible speaks about and that kind of thing. Um, other times, there is a sense that uh, that Israel forfeited her promises. You know, God made promises to Israel, but Israel has been unfaithful and has crucified her Messiah and, and has rejected Messiah, you know, and that kind of thing. So therefore, she forfeited her promises and those now uh, have come upon the church. Uh, it's, it's more specifically known as replacement theology. And that kind of theology really leads to the second point um, that I find myself, um, you know, uh, really feeling strongly about the importance of spending time on this topic. Um, the, the idea that the church has replaced Israel, I think, and again, forgive me if I'm a little blunt about this, I don't mean it to come off harsh or anything, but I think that grows out of a misunderstanding of Scripture as pertains to God's promises to Israel. And I think it leads to all kinds of problems, not the least of which is a misunderstanding of much of apocalyptic literature in the Scripture. Um, I think it uh, it has um, participated and it's contributed to um, sort of a uh, a misguided view of what passages in Scripture are intending to say. One case in point that we talked about on Sunday is um, is Revelation 12, where the woman with the sun, moon, and stars is mentioned. Um, uh, I grew up as a Catholic, and so anytime I would have heard about this passage, it was always assumed to represent the church, uh, especially since 
Uh, Mary is often seen in view there as the mother of Christ, and Mary's identification with the church in Roman Catholic theology um, is, uh, 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 is something that I just grew up with, but it's patently mistaken. The, the, the woman in Revelation 12 is not the church. Uh, it, it could be seen in a sense as Mary, but insofar as she is a Jew, as insofar as she rep would be part of Israel, part of the commonwealth of Israel, through whom Messiah was born. And that is, of course, the picture in Revelation 12, as the woman gives birth to the child, uh, who is then carried off into heaven, and she then is persecuted by the dragon and such. Um, the idea of Israel being persecuted, Israel giving birth to Messiah, and, and of course, being swept up into heaven in the resurrection, and then, of course, uh, Israel being persecuted. Not to mention the fact that in Genesis 37, the imagery is there in Joseph's dream, and Jacob himself, no less than Jacob, ultimately interprets that. And so we understand that this woman is representative of Israel. Um, but when you take a perspective that Israel is set aside, and therefore all these passages now refer to the church, it can lead to all kinds of theological problems like that one. And so um, so for reasons like this, um, I find myself again compelled to touch on this from time to time. And so I want to take our time today to go through uh, sort of a, a little bit of a journey uh, and, and point to... Uh, and, and build uh, at least a starting point for an Israelology, a sense of understanding Israel's place in eschatology. And I'm going to try and do it in a reasonably brief and brisk sort of way, uh, because this is a subject, and I guess I should say that even though I'm going to point to a handful of passages, really, uh, by no means should we think that these are the only passages that really speak to this. Uh, there are many, many, many more passages throughout Scripture that make this case that I'm going to make today. Uh, and there are also very um, clear implications uh, throughout the Scripture that would point to this understanding. Uh, and I think it's crucial that we have this understanding, because um, as we go through the Scripture, to rightly divide the Word, to understand it, to cut straight the teaching of the Word of God, and to make sure that we present it um, uh, as straightforwardly as we can, we want to let the Bible say what it says. And there are some very specific things in regard to Israel that the scriptures say, even from the earliest points where Israel now comes to, to into view. And, and, and of course, there we're going to start in, in Genesis chapter 12. So uh, hopefully you've got your Bible ready, and uh, you maybe want to bookmark some things or underline some passages in that. But this, uh, and this, this is offered really not in, in uh, with a desire to argue and 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 you know besmirch other believers and that who who are coming from a different perspective on this. Although I would say that it is very much my intention to sway those who have a different view of these things to this view. And I don't say that about very many things. But um, you you can be a believer and have a wrong view of the place of Israel in eschatology. It is possible to be a born again Christian and just not be on the right side of this issue. Um, but it is. Uh, it is nonetheless an extremely important one uh, for a number of reasons, again, not the least of which is that it helps us understand much more comprehensively a sense of what is going on throughout the entirety of Scripture. So we're going to go to the Old and New Testaments both to kind of make this case today. And again, I'm going to try and do it in a relatively brisk way. So uh, again, this, these are not all the passages on this by any means, but it should give us at least a good uh, place to start and to uh, give us a beginning point to build our understanding of these things a little more thoroughly. Now, in chapter 12 of Genesis, this is where God is calling Abram. He becomes known as Abraham, and I'll typically use his name interchangeably as Abram and Abraham. Um, he becomes Abraham later, but we're talking about the same person. 
But in chapter 12, the Lord had said to Abraham, or Abram, there I go already, uh, get out of your country and from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. And in, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then to continue that thought, just to jump down to verse seven, and as always, I encourage you to read the entirety of the passages. It's just for time's sake that I'm kind of just taking a few uh, sample passages from these, but please do, by all means, read the entire passage. Verse seven, then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your descendants, I will give this land. And he there built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. I'm going to continue and come back and talk about this, but in chapter 15, um, I'm going to uh, invite you to take a look uh, at verse 16. Now, this is the, uh, a point where Abram is now getting pretty old, and he's starting to wonder how God is going to fulfill his promise to give him an heir and make a great nation of him. Uh, in his old age, he doesn't really see how it's going to happen physically be, uh, you know, with him and his wife, Sarai, because um, they're getting old. And so Abram begins to wonder if maybe God is going to fulfill his promise through his servant, uh, Eliezer. But God says, no, I'm not going to do it through your servant. Someone of your own, uh, you know, your own offspring will be the means through which I fulfill my promise. And in verse 14, in that context, he talks about how they will ultimately serve another nation. This turns out, of course, to be Egypt. But in verse 14, he says, and also the nation whom they serve, again, Egypt, I will judge, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Now, this doesn't happen until later on in Exodus, many years after Abram's time. But God is letting him know ahead of time what's going to happen to his posterity. In other words, I'm not just going to make you a great nation. I'm going to tell you a little bit about the great nation that is going to come from you. And so verse 14 again, they shall come out with great possessions. Now, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace and you shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete, and much more could be said about that last part. But I want to key in on the fact that God tells Abram that his descendants are going to come back here. Where's here? The land that God has given Abram. Uh, chapter 17, one more. Um, uh, let me go ahead and invite you to look at verse 8. Uh, uh, verse 7, really. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And he goes on to then speak about the covenant sign of circumcision and such that would identify the Jewish people as God's chosen people. So there is, just in these few passages, and there are many more, but in these few passages at the earliest part of Abram's call to follow God, there is this what is known as the Abrahamic covenant. The idea that God is going to do two things. He's going to make a great nation of Abraham. Abraham's descendants will be like the stars of the sky and such. And ultimately, Abram does have a son, Isaac, who then has a son, Jacob, who then has 12 sons uh, who become the 12 tribes of Israel, who ultimately go into Egypt, end up being slaves there for 400 years, and then they're released. And ultimately, then we uh, see uh, Moses leading the people out, as God had said, plundering the people as they left, uh, plundering the Egyptians, and they go on to become a great nation. They become Pleiades in Egypt. Well, um, God makes this covenant with Abram, 
And in chapter 15, again, I'm encouraging you to read the whole passage, but I'm going to summarize here. In chapter 15, God not only reiterates this covenant, but he ultimately establishes the covenant with Abram uh, unilaterally. What that means is, is that through a particular means, God verifies that he's making this covenant with Abram, and he does not allow Abram to participate in the making of this covenant. In other words, it is something that depends entirely on God's faithfulness, has nothing to do with Abram's faithfulness or his descendants. It has to do with his faithfulness, God's alone. That's an extremely important and crucial point. Uh, And it immediately deals with the issue when it comes to Israel, when the argument comes up that Israel has been unfaithful, therefore they forfeited the promises. No, 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 a thousand times no. God says it has nothing to do with Abram's faithfulness or his posterity, but God has made an everlasting covenant and, and settled it upon his own faithfulness. Now, without that understanding, and by the way, just one more point on that, it's not just that he's going to make them a, a plentiful people, like many people, but he's given them a very specific parcel of real estate in the Middle East that we call Israel. It's known as Canaan. It becomes known as Israel. This is the land that God has given them. And the covenant has to do with both the, the expansive nature of, of the, the number of people, but also the location that God has given them. Okay, those two things are central to the Abrahamic covenant, and they rest upon God's faithfulness and his faithfulness alone. Now, to continue on that thought, I'm going to invite you to turn on over to Ezekiel chapter 36 and 37. Uh, Chuck Missler used to say, when he would talk about Ezekiel, and I think he was generally talking about Ezekiel 40 through 48 and that, but but in any case, if I remember correctly, but but uh, he would often kind of quip that, you know, most people don't realize that there are more chapters in Ezekiel than just chapters 38 and 39. 38 and 39, of course, deal with the, the scenario that the nations surrounding, immediately surrounding Israel, uh, come against her in this conflict that is mentioned there. But chapters 36 and 37, ramping up to that, speak about the idea of Israel coming back to the land. And I would, when I read Ezekiel 37, uh, and 36 really, um, I see in that sort of a dual fulfillment uh, in view. One is when they do naturally, in fact, come back to the land. Uh, in chapter 37, we famously know the, the vision of the dry bones that come to life and, and, and revive and, and become this great nation of Israel again. Chapter 36 talks about the... Uh, no, chapter 37. Uh, uh, 36, I think where it talks about them coming together not as two separate nations, northern and southern tribes, Israel northern and Judah southern, but these two sticks coming together as one. They will be restored as a single nation, not two nations, as they had been during the time when they ultimately each went into captivity. Uh, But they would come back into the land as a unified people. Uh, And so when, when we see that happening practically, physically, we see that take place in 1948, But there's also elements that are spoken of in these two chapters about them coming back in belief. Now, in 1948, they came back in unbelief, but yet there is mention of them coming to being a nation in belief. 
And so that apparently would then speak much farther down the road, uh, post, uh, or, you know, at the at the millennial kingdom, I should say, at the, at the uh, after the day when Christ puts down Antichrist and the false prophet, Satan is bound. The resurrection takes place of the Old Testament saints. They enter into the promise of the of the kingdom that they had been waiting for, and they come to enjoy, and they're there in belief. Why? Because as they have, uh, as Christ returns, and they look upon Him whom they've pierced, as it were. The nation sees this, and then those who are alive at that time that walk in, and those resurrected saints of the Old Testament ultimately join in and enter the millennial kingdom. Uh, so that being said, there is kind of, I, I see in there kind of a dual fulfillment in that. But the point I want to make on this in regard to the promise that God made to Israel nationally, ethnically, uh, there is mention here of God, of the reason why God is going to keep his covenant, keep his promise, keep his, uh, be faithful to that which he has promised Abram and his descendants. And we see it mentioned here a few times throughout chapters 36 and 37. In chapter 36, uh, verse 21, uh, verse 20, when they came to the nations, wherever they went, they profaned my holy name, speaking of his people as they were dispersed among the nations. Uh, they profaned my holy name when they said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they have gone out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations wherever they went. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake. Verse 23, I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you profaned in their midst. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes, for I will take you from among the nations and gather you out of all countries and bring you into your own land. Uh, later in chapter 36, again, verse 32, not for your sake do I do this, says the Lord God. Let it be known to you, uh, uh, be ashamed and confounded on your own own ways, O house of Israel. In other words, the Lord is saying that I'm doing this that I might uphold my great name. It's not just that I'm doing this to bring you back for your own benefit and such, but I'm ultimately doing it because I have staked my reputation on this. Okay, God has said he will be faithful to his people, and that faithfulness has been shown uh, to, to, to a great degree because of his own people's unfaithfulness. And that is part of the, the mind-blowing nature of the faithfulness of God, is that in spite of how unfaithful his people are, God yet remains faithful. You know, Paul says something similar to Timothy when he says that God, uh, you know, even when we're faithless, God remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. There are echoes of this very thing in that idea. Uh, matter of fact, it is the assuredness of the truth of this taking place that even finds its way into the New Testament. Uh, in, in Acts chapter 1, we remember how the disciples, before Jesus ascends to the Father, they ask him, will you then restore the kingdom to Israel? He doesn't deny that the kingdom's, uh, Jesus doesn't deny that the kingdom will be restored to Israel. He just doesn't tell them when. He says the times and seasons aren't for you to know. But instead, they're to wait in Jerusalem until they're endowed with power from on high. In other words, there's work yet to be done. Uh, but their expectation of the kingdom is a natural one that has been fueled by God himself throughout the Old Testament and is in no way uh, having water thrown on it by Jesus in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, in Luke chapter 1, uh, this is an important passage to understand. In Luke chapter uh, 1, the angel Gabriel uh, comes to Mary and announces Christ's birth, It'll, that she is going to give birth to the Messiah. Uh, in verse 31, and behold, 
uh, Gabriel tells Mary, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there shall be no end. Uh, It is not generic. It is specific. He will rule over the house of Jacob, over the twelve tribes of Israel. He will sit on the throne of his father David. Uh, Mary would not have in any way understood this as anything but a fulfillment of messianic promise. And she has now been uh, found uh, by the Lord to be the the vehicle through which uh, he would bring the Messiah into the world uh, in the incarnation, God in the flesh in Christ. And so recognize the Jewishness of what's being said there. There is once again a reiterating of the messianic hope. He will not just come and, 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 and on the one part, he comes to save us from our sin, but there remains this fulfilling of the promises made to Israel. Now that, uh, again, is, is a massively enormous thing for us to understand. Um, let, me, let me say too, by the way, as kind of a quick um, insert here, uh, and we talked about this in a, in a post not too long ago, but um, there is mention in Ezekiel 37 about David sitting on, it was Ezekiel 37 or 38. I, I don't want to just, um, uh, let's see here. I think it was Ezekiel 37, actually. Just my, my brain is a little, yeah, right here in Ezekiel 37, 24. David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statues and do them. There is some debate within the, the body of Christ regarding this, those who study prophecy and wonder, is, is in fact David literally in view, sitting on a throne ruling over uh, in the millennial uh, era, or uh, is it simply symbolically pointing to Christ, who in Second uh, Samuel 7, when David is told that, a, uh, that, that the lineage of Messiah will come from him, uh, that's a great passage to read too, by the way, Second Samuel 7, but... Um, you know, David wants to build God a house because he sees he's living in, in the tent, in the tabernacle that uh, has been carried around since the day of Moses and has been settled now. David sees this, realizes that he himself is living in a, a very nice place and says it's not right that God is living in a tent, essentially. And so he wants to build God a house. And so God says, I, uh, I honor the wishes of your heart and the desire of your heart, but you can't build me a house because you've got too much blood on your hands. But I'm going to build you a house, essentially. In other words, through your lineage, the Messiah will come. And so, um, so there is, uh, one on one hand, an understanding that it's not literally David who's going to sit on the throne, but Christ, who is of the seed of David, who will ultimately sit on the throne. And so it's fulfilled in that way. Others, and I lean this way a little bit too, um, is that David himself, among those resurrected Old Testament saints who enter into the millennium, David, sitting on one of those thrones, ruling and reigning, may in fact have a place of prominence because of uh, the mention of him in, in these passages. And so, uh, but we'll we'll see. We'll see what happens. Uh, you can't be dogmatic about it, but there, those are the two views generally that are held. But that being said, the idea of, of Christ sitting on the throne of his father David, uh, which of course lends credence to the idea that it's symbolically speaking of David in Ezekiel thirty-seven twenty-four. But again, we'll that's maybe another thing. But. Um, but the idea that there will be the fulfillment of a king in Israel sitting on the throne over the 12 tribes is something that is inherently present there in Luke chapter 1 as the angel tells Mary. 
In other words, he will be the fulfillment of messianic hope, uh, not just in terms of forgiving sin, but in terms of the expectancy that Israel had always had. Again, Jesus, uh, again, doesn't squelch this at all in Acts chapter 1. And I'm going to have you turn to Romans uh, chapter 11 at this point, because um, this is where Paul himself helps to further this idea of God's faithfulness to his people. Um, I mentioned at the very beginning that there, there is this thinking that the church has replaced Israel. Um, and part of the thinking for that comes out of, again, Paul, his own writing, where he talks about those who are truly of Israel are, are those who are sons of Abraham by faith, or the seed of Abraham by faith. Because Abraham believed and it was counted to him for righteousness, therefore those who believe are counted as children of Abraham. Now that has caused many within the Christian church, and not just recently, but since, since some of the earliest times, apparently since the time of Romans when Paul wrote this, because it would appear that he is clearing something up with this. The idea that possibly being that Christians there in the first century in Paul's time were thinking that since Israel and, and, and Rome, the Roman church was predominantly Gentile, um, the, the thinking may have even been back then that in some way uh, that Israel has sort of been set aside because of their unbelief. And Paul seems to speak to that very directly here in Romans chapter 11. But that forms the basis of why so many believers today have either little or even no regard or even take on a surprisingly antagonistic view of Israel as being set aside completely because of their unfaithfulness, ultimately expressed in the crucifixion of Christ. I would say that Paul in Romans 11, and and this is an unfortunate thing in Romans 9 through 11. Romans 9 through 11 is frankly avoided by many Christians because of the discussion about the sovereignty of God, his election, and those kinds of things, which he talks about elsewhere in Romans 2. But in 9 through 11, that's one of the premier passages regarding God's election and and, and the question of free will and the sovereignty of God and how do these you know, we think about how these things interact, and we can't do that without going to Romans 9 through 11. And unfortunately, because that tends to be what is seen most in Romans 9 through 11, and not without cause, I mean, that's obviously a central theme. However, the example that is used of this concept to help express it is Israel. And the language that Paul uses in Romans 11 to help settle the issue of God's faithfulness to his people intertwined with this question or the subject and issue of sovereignty and election and this kind of thing is enormously profound. And so I want us to look at something here. Now, in Romans 11, and again, you you really need to spend time reading Romans 9 through 11, okay? We're actually almost upon it in our, our Roman study here on the podcast, and we will we will get there someday. I know that it's you know I'm not rushing through Romans. We also talk about things like this and other uh, things as well. So we're taking our time and 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 uh, and such. But when we do get there, we'll go through these things in in uh, in detail as well. But in Romans 11, Paul is talking about the idea that Israel is the true and original branch that God raised up, and. The branch, some of the branches on the vine have been trimmed off, and other branches, and that is speaking of the idea of Gentiles, have been grafted in. 
Now, again, it would seem that Paul is dealing with an issue that has come up in the thinking of the Roman church or the Gentile believers, and that is that they have, since they have been grafted onto the vine, they have replaced Israel. And this is what Paul speaks to here in this. And he goes on to say, I'm just going to read a little bit of it here. And we did talk about this on Sunday, but I thought it would be important to come back and put this in part of our sort of um, set-apart, encapsulated discussion on the subject here. Um, But let me go ahead and read the passage here, verse 16 of Romans 11. For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, and there's a comma there in our English translations, but let me just pause and point something out in that verse. Notice it says here, if you as a wild olive tree were grafted in among them and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, the implication being this, that there are branches that have been trimmed off, not all of them, but some have, and the Gentiles have been grafted onto this, but as he will say, they're going to be grafted on again too. So we are among those original branches and we are partaking with those original branches. That's very, very significant. It is not that we have replaced them. We have come alongside of them, and we are part of something with them. It, it says that we are, uh, 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 in verse 17, I'm sorry, I said 16, in verse 17, but he says, you're grafted in among them and with them, not instead of them, or not besides them, like they're, they're out and we're in now, but among them and with them. Okay, distinct from them in some ways, but yet on the same, on the same vine. You know, it's 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 not insignificant that Jesus spoke of himself as the vine and spoke of his disciples as the branches. Now, we understand that idea of abiding in Him and bearing much fruit and all of that kind of thing, but Jesus didn't use metaphors carelessly. That metaphor has. You know, Paul is, is referencing a, an idea that Jesus, no doubt, of course, understands as well. Uh, matter of fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, there is mention in verses 14 and on about how the two, uh, the Jews and Gentiles, where there used to be a wall of enmity, now that wall is broken down, the two become one in the church. Now again, there is, there is the view that that means that there's no longer a, a national ethnic Israel as if they're done and now it's just the church. That's not true. Paul goes on to deal with that. Again, I'll invite you to read the rest of, of chapter 11, but let me go ahead and, um, and, and quote a couple of verses here, point to a couple of verses here. Um, let me come back to this passage we were just reading, actually, just finish that thought. Um, you will say then, verse 19, or verse 18, uh, don't do not boast against the branches, but if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. In other words, God set them aside that He might save me. Now we're the thing is basically what's implied there. But verse twenty continues. Well said, because of unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. And then he goes on to talk about how the original branches can be grafted back in. So it's, it's like Paul is saying, hey, look, wait for a minute. Hold on a second. 
In the midst of the entire discussion about these branches being cut off and new ones being grafted in and the old ones being grafted on, Paul is making sure we understand that there is a question once again of God's faithfulness. God has said to Israel that they will inherit the promises. They will see the kingdom. They are his chosen people and all the blessing that will come with that. Have they been disciplined? Absolutely. Have they been kicked out of the land for a time and brought back? Yes. Uh, Are they a model of obedience? No, of course not. But neither are we, right? But Paul here says, look, if God is not going to show his faithfulness to Israel, if he's not going to remain faithful to his promises to his original covenant people, then you should be a little bit concerned about whether or not he's going to be faithful to you. But Paul goes on to talk about the being grafted back into the vine. In verse 25, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness has in part happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. Okay? So there is a blindness upon Israel for the time being. God has set them aside temporarily. While this era of the Gentiles, we sometimes call it the age of grace, the idea of this period of time, uh, if you're dispensational especially, we refer to this as the, the age of grace, following the age of the law and that kind of thing. But the idea is that there's a period of time in which God is working not through Israel, but through the church. He's still saving Jews. There are Israelites, Hebrews, that are, that are becoming believers in Christ and their Messiah. But by and large, in general, God is working now through a different entity known as the church. This is the church age. But once the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, in other words, once the last of the Gentiles in that era of the church age ultimately comes, comes to faith, then the blindness will be lifted upon Israel. See, now, when we understand this, this helps us now get a better perspective on the book of Revelation. Um, And again, without starting fights about when the wrath begins and when the rapture is and all that kind of thing, there is something fundamental about our understanding of these things that helps us now see who is in view throughout the bulk of the book of Revelation and why. But now we understand that once that blindness, uh, uh, ultimate, or once the, the, that, that period of time ends, the blindness is lifted, and Israel once again moves into view in God's prophetic timetable, if you will. But here's the main point I want to get to, and it comes now down to verse 28. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. In other words, God promised Abraham, their father. And even though they stand against the gospel today, from Paul's day all the way up to ours, nonetheless, even though they would be enemies of the gospel, they are still beloved of God for the sake of the promise that he made to the fathers. Verse 29, for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Now, I've heard that passage used to justify you know, people in ministry falling, but nevertheless, uh, being told that they still have the gift because God doesn't take back the gifts, and so they go back into ministry eventually and that kind of thing. That may or may not be the case in that context. That's not even, but but it's important to recognize that's not what Paul is talking about here. Paul is talking about the promises and the election of Israel that God made for them, and that cannot be gone back on. Why? Because God made a unilateral covenant with Abraham that did not rest on their faithfulness whatsoever. It rested entirely on his. 
And that is why when we get to chapter 19 and Christ returns with his saints, when we see the millennial kingdom established, that is the kingdom that has been spoken of in places like Daniel chapter uh, 7, uh, uh, in, in various places throughout the Old Testament, Isaiah, where it describes what the millennium is going to look like and those kinds of things, Zechariah chapter 14 we've been talking about recently. This is fulfillment of God's promises to his chosen people, Israel, first and foremost. Now, again, in Romans 11, we see that we're grafted on the vine. That's why we can return with Christ to rule and reign alongside of him on thrones in the millennial kingdom as well. But nonetheless, that is a fulfillment, first and foremost, of promises made to Israel. Uh, as a matter of fact, um, you know, even later on, when we see this new Jerusalem coming down from heaven in that, what does it have? But it has representation of both the 12 tribes and also the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And so we have uh, this wonderful picture of this, this beautiful distinction that takes place that, is, is, or that, that exists, that is demonstrated through, uh, through the model and the pictures that are given. So when it comes to acknowledging that Israel remains the apple of God's eye, that they remain singularly his chosen people, ethnically and nationally. When we talk about Israel as a nation, uh, and let me just say this, by the way, I don't really believe that the Israel and the nation uh, in the land today is not the Israel that is spoken of in Scripture. But let's even just say for the sake of argument that the current body of believers in Israel are not the ones uh, uh, connected to Abraham in some way or whatever the, the various theories are to set aside the promises for Israel because the people today are not the right ones is still wrong because that would only mean that later that group of national ethnic Hebrews will go back to the land because that's what the Bible says. Um, now, again, I don't think that's the case. I think the current group that is there is, is in fact the Israel that is being spoken about. But nonetheless, the promises that God has made, again, fundamentally have to do with the nation as a people, but also in regard to to the land itself. And so the land is inextricably linked to the idea of the Abrahamic covenant that is that is going to be faithfully fulfilled because it relies solely, totally, and only upon God's faithfulness, not his people's faithfulness. So my hope is that um, uh, is that in some small way this has gone a little bit of distance to helping clear up some of the arguments and discussions that happen, again, even among believers today in regard to the subject of Israel. Uh, as, as always, the scripture has to drive the discussion. And, and at the end of the day, the scriptures portray not an either or. Uh, it is either Israel physically, nationally, ethnically, or Israel spiritually, as we're uh, you know, sons of Abraham by faith. It is actually both and. Both are true at the same time. And that is something that we need to recognize. It's, it's maybe a different way of seeing things than, than maybe you might be used to, but that's what the scriptures portray. In other words, God is going to be faithful to his people and to the physical land that he promised them. And he is also saving people by faith. In other words, and by the way, nobody's not saved by faith. I'm just simply drawing a distinction between uh, the physical, ethnic people of Israel and the spiritual version. But at the end of the day, even the national, physical, ethnic Hebrew people come to faith in their Messiah when he returns, right? Nobody has ever been saved by the law. Nobody ever got saved by obedience under the old covenant because it could not save anybody. As Paul, uh, no less than a Pharisee himself, said in Romans chapter 3 that all have sinned 
and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, no one has ever kept the law. Even Paul himself acknowledges his woefully falling short of, of, of the lofty, beautiful, glorious standard of God's law. So, again, um, without going on further tangents, I'm just going to stop right there. Um, so, my hope is that, again, this goes some way into bringing some clarity to this discussion. Uh, and again, using the scripture to demonstrate this. And this is, again, always the important thing. So, that being said, if you have any questions or uh, anything like that, always feel free to share them. And uh, you can do that on our YouTube channel's comment section. You can go to our uh, my website at parsonspad.com and you can, uh, you can uh, communicate, connect that way. You can also go to our church's website at calvarychapelfranklin.com and you can email us from there as well. So thank you for watching. Thanks for uh, indulging this uh, opportunity to talk about this subject again. Uh, again, I think it's important that we understand this because it is something that is divisive in the body of Christ, but it should not be. The Bible is very, very clear on this subject, and I think it, uh, it, it bears out quite neatly, actually. So hopefully this has helped to, to, to make that point. Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you that your word is spoken about these very difficult subjects. We thank you that uh, in, in the face of division over this topic, your word is spoken. And we just pray that, Father, we would, as believers, be very supportive, blessing uh, your people and not cursing them. That, Father, we would pray for the peace of Jerusalem, even as your word says, that we would, Father, not, uh, not um, cast aspersions upon the apple of your eye, that we not... Uh, diminish them, that we not think of them as somehow uh, having forfeited the promises because ultimately it is those, uh, it is your faithfulness that those promises rest upon. Uh, Israel does not always do everything right. They're sometimes worthy of rebuke and all that kind of thing, but they remain your people nonetheless, and you have a glorious plan for them in these days in which we're living and certainly in the days to come. So thank you, Father. We love you and praise you for all of this. And with great expectation, we thank you for the great hope that you've given us of all that is yet to come, your kingdom and even eternity beyond. So thank you, Lord. Thank you for grafting us Gentiles into the vine and again, giving us this glorious hope. Praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.